Turn with me, if you will, to Genesis chapter 2. Genesis chapter 2. <clears throat> Continue our study that we've begun of this book. This morning we'll look at verses 4 to 17. Genesis 2, 4 to 17. <clears throat> As my wife can testify, uh, I'm not much of one to stop and ask for directions if we're out and about somewhere. Oh, but I am a big map person. Uh, often I believe the most important minutes of a whole trip are those minutes that you spent looking at the map before you started. Um, just something about getting a sense of the lay of the land. Where are we going and what are we going to encounter along the way so that uh, if there are important uh, crossroads and important junctions, uh, we, we, we see them coming and we don't suddenly get caught on the freeway uh, with four lanes of traffic to go across and you know how that, uh, that is. So this morning, um, before we even read the text, in a, in a little bit of a different uh, uh, procedure than we often have, I want us to take uh, a couple of minutes to explain the map of Genesis to you. I think it'll help us for weeks to come as we, as we make our way through this book, and it'll certainly help us this morning to know what to do with this text, to kind of spread out the map and look at what, what does the book look like here, and I think it, it, it comes up this morning in, in our text, so this is a good time to talk about it. Genesis is divided by a little Hebrew word, and I know you don't all like to hear about Hebrew words, but, but that's what it was written in, so we have to talk that way sometimes. Genesis is divided into 11 sections. And, and, and the division is made by this little Hebrew word called toledot, toledot. You don't have to know that word, but that's just, uh, you'll see it here. That, that, that word is found for the first time in verse 4, where we read here, this is the account, that's the word, account. This is the account of such and such, right? Now, in the older versions of the Bible, if you have a King James or something like that, it probably says these are the generations of. And it says that because the, the word toledot comes from the word to give birth or to beget. It's, uh, it's, this is what something produces. And so it was translated that way. But, but without going into a lot of detail that I don't even understand sometimes, uh, as, I, as I read the guys who do Hebrew scholarly work, th been it's been real helpful to understand that in recent years it has been real clear that this word should be translated for us. This is what became of. In other words, this is what was produced. You know, we see the connection with to give birth or, or, or to beget. This is what became of. So this is how the book is divided. First we have the, the, the account of the creation, chapter 1, 1 to chapter 2, verse 3. We've talked about that already for the last few weeks. We have that account as kind of an introductory statement. And then the rest of the book is divided into ten more sections. And, and, and each section is introduced by this little word. So that here in 2.4, we have the toledot of the heavens and the earth. And in chapter 5, the toledot of Adam. And in chapter 6, the toledot of Noah. And then of Shem, Ham, and Japheth. And then of Shem, and then of Terah, and Ishmael, and Isaac, and Esau, and Jacob. Ten more sections of the book in addition to the creation account. And interestingly, every time this word is used, the subject of it, or, or, or the, the thing it refers to, is something that's just happened already. So that here it says, the, the, the account of, or, 
or this is what became of the heavens and the earth, but it's just talked about the heavens and the earth already. And when it gets around to talk about this is uh, the Toledot of Noah, it's already talked about Noah. So what's going on here? It's crucial to our understanding the book of Genesis. What's happening is at the end of each section of the story, it's as if the author asks, so whatever happened to old so-and-so that we were talking about? And the answer to that determines the next part of the story. But you see, what happens then is that there's a, a constant narrowing of the focus of the story throughout the book of Genesis. For in, in, in one given account, he picks out one thing there and says, now, what happened to this? And that becomes the theme of the next thing. And then he picks out one thing of that, and that becomes the theme of the next section so that the book is constantly narrowed down from the heavens and the earth down to Adam, and then from all of Adam's offspring down to Noah, and then from down, down to Shem, Ham, and Japheth, and then down to Shem only, and then down to Terah, one of his descendants. And it keeps narrowing down as God is outlining his purposes for us in this book. One more thing. In each one of these Toledot sections, there's a recurring theme. In every one of them, there's this theme of blessing and cursing. Blessing and cursing. In other words, God's unfolding his covenant for us here. For it's God's covenant that's characterized by blessing and cursing, by promise and obligation. Those are covenant words, and that's what God's doing throughout this book of Genesis. And so this morning we come to this first section, the Toledot of the heavens and the earth. Whatever became of the heavens and the earth that God created in chapter 1? Now some people say, well, what we have in chapter 2 is, is some other writers... Uh, creation account, a competing creation account. Well, you see, this shows they've missed the whole point. What we have here is a further explanation of the simple creation account we've got in chapter 1 uh, that's now telling us what happened to it, how it developed. And we know what happened. Sin entered it and brought devastation to the heaven and the earth. That's, that's what happened. And sure enough, in this section, which begins with blessing, as we'll see this morning, it's going to end by the time we get to the end of chapter 4 with Cain murdering his brother and in only a few generations his descendants cursing their creator. Blessing to cursing. Blessing to cursing. These are the key concepts of God's covenant which are being unfolded in this book. We see that in another way in this section before we even start looking at it, before we even read it. We see that covenantal thing confirmed in this section because right here in today's text, we have a new name for God introduced. In chapter 1, it was Elohim, God. Translate God. But now in this chapter, it's the Lord God. Lord in all capitals. That's the word Yahweh. Now what's going on there? Some people said, see, we have a different author here. He calls God by a different name. Wait, wait, wait a minute. You've missed the point. God is unfolding his covenant mercies, and the minute he begins to talk about that, what does he do? He picks up the name Yahweh, which is the covenant name that God gives himself. And so here in chapter 2, the Elohim, the almighty creator, chapter 1, 
has become Elohim, Yahweh, the creator who's entered into covenant with people. And we'll see that's the focus, his relationship to man here. Well, that's a long look at the roadmap. That's where we're headed. That's kind of how we see the book a little bit, and it'll keep coming up again and again, so I thought it would be just worth taking a few minutes to talk about it. Let's read this passage, and then we'll get into it a little bit. Verse 4, this is the account of the heavens and earth when they were created. When the Lord God made the earth and the heavens, and no shrubs of the field had yet appeared on the earth, and no plant of the field had yet sprung up, for the Lord had not sent rain on the earth, and there was no man to work the ground, but streams came up from the earth and watered the whole surface of the ground. The Lord God formed the man from the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and the man became a living being. Now the Lord God had planted a garden in the east, in Eden, and there he put the man he had formed. The Lord God made all kinds of trees grow out of the ground, trees that were pleasing to the eye and good for food. And in the middle of the garden there were trees, were the tree of life and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. A river watering the garden flowed from Eden. From there it was separated into four headwaters. The name of the first is the Pishon. It winds through the entire land of Havilah, where there was gold. The gold of that land is good, Aramaic rosin and Onyx are also there. The name of the second river is the Gihon. It winds through the entire land of Cush. The name of the third river is the Tigris. It runs along the east side of Asher. And the fourth river is the Euphrates. The Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and take care of it. And the Lord God commanded the man, you are free to eat from any tree of the garden, but you must not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. For when you eat of it, you will surely die. And we'll stop there. <clears throat> there are two truths I want us to learn from this text this morning. We'll spend most of our time on the first one, although the second is just as important. First truth is this. God has blessed man with all the bounty of creation. God has blessed man with all the bounty of his creation. We'll think about that one. I haven't done it yet, but I've been advised that I need to take a pad of paper and a pen and begin to go around my house and write down an inventory of everything we own. Better yet, take a camera and go around and take pictures of everything. Just so that if a fire destroyed it all someday, you would know, you could know what was lost. For you don't know what you're trying to replace until you know what you lost. <laughs> I think that's what we have in these verses. We have God giving us a snapshot of the creation before sin entered. Here God shows us what we lost when sin entered the picture. This is a picture of the normal creation. Unfortunately, none of us have ever seen the normal creation. We have only seen the abnormal, fallen, devastated world, which continues to this day, a world that's under the curse because of man's sin. 
Well, we see hints of beauty, but we also see ugliness. But it wasn't always this way. Here's what it used to look like. Back in the beginning, when God lavished blessing on man, the blessing of all of his creation for the man that he created. Let me just explain some of the ways that we see that in this text, because there may be a little detail, but they're really interesting things. I'll mention three different things. First of all, in verses 4 to 7. Verses 4 to 7, we have a, a reiteration of the creation account. Now, this is really confusing stuff when we read this, and we don't know what to do with it, and we don't know quite how to correlate it to what we just read the chapter before in Genesis 1, right at the beginning. But as I study the guys who are the, the grammatical scholars who understand the language and all, especially one man... Dr. Alan Ross was really helpful in this. He pointed out that what we have in verses 4 to 7, as far as the grammar and the structure of the sentences in the Hebrew, what we have in verses 4 to 7 is parallel with what we have in Genesis 1, 1, 3. So that both of them begin with a summary statement. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And then here it begins uh, in verse 4, when the Lord God made the earth and the heaven. And then you have a, a series of cir three circumstantial clauses, two of them negative and one positive. The earth was without form and void, and darkness and the water, the spirit hovered over the waters. And we have these things in here about the uh, no shrub and uh, uh, no plant of the field and the water springing up from the earth. These parallel, very similarly, similar grammatically, the circumstantial clause. And then you have, a, 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 at the end, a main clause. And in, the, in, the, in the Genesis 1, 3, the main clause is, after all of this, and God said, let there be light. And there was light. But here the main clause is in verse 7. And the Lord formed the man. Here's the difference between this creation account and the creation account of Genesis 1.1. While chapter 1 gives us some kind of a chronological framework that we don't always know what to do, but we can understand that's what it is, day 1, day 2, day 3, day 4. Chapter 2 gives us a logical order where we think about things in, 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 in regard to the importance and what's the focus of that logical order? God's creation of man. That's the pivotal point. So that it's for man that the whole unformed earth is waiting. It's for man that the earth was planted and cultivated. You see what he's saying? God has blessed man with all the bounty of the creation. It's not just that God made the heavens and the earth, and oh yeah, I think I'll put another creature in there. In this account, it says, God made the heavens and the earth for man, his image bearer. God's intention was to bless man with all the bounty of his creation. But we see that blessedness in another way. When we look more closely at that verse 7, which is the actual, the description of the creation of man itself. Let me just read it again. 
The Lord God formed the man from the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and the man became a living being. This account doesn't deny what we learned before, where was, the Lord said, let us make God in our image. The image of God created him, male and female. He doesn't deny that. This just expands it. Derek Kidner, Kidner has a wonderful uh, explanation of this. He says that this verse, with profound simplicity, matches that verse back in 127, let's make man our image. But here's the difference. He says in that verse back in chapter 1, it's the nouns. It's the nouns that relate God to man. He's, we're made in his image, in his likeness. Now, but he says in this passage, it's the verbs that relate man to God. And the verbs are formed and breathed. And then he discusses these, and I'll just quote some from him. He says, formed is a word used for a craftsman skillfully forming a piece of art. Formed is used in the Bible of a potter who's turning clay on his potter's wheel to make a, a, a vase. He forms it. Form has to do with sovereignty. He does whatever he pleases. Has to do with skill. He does it skillfully. He forms a piece of art. But says Kid, the other word, breathed, is a warmly personal word with the face to face listen to this quote with the face to face intimacy of a kiss and the significance that it's an act of giving not just making god forms us with the craftsman's skill and with the with the artist's sovereignty but he breathes with personal act of giving with an intimacy he makes man in his image the lord god formed the man from the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life and the man became a living being dr james boyce writes the earlier chapter does not give us anything comparable to this picture of God bending down to form Adam out of the dust and then gently placing his mouth next to Adam's face in order to blow into him life. Oh, stand in awe of this creator, Yahweh, the covenant God, who didn't just make us. He made us for himself. What blessing. What infinite blessing. Surely he has blessed man with all the bounty of the creation. Oh, we see God's blessing one more way here. Verses 8 to 14, we read of God preparing the Garden of Eden. For this creature, man, who's made in his image, 
Now, the word Eden actually means delight. <laughs> what a great word. Name your place, delight. And here was God's delightful bounty prepared for his man. It's planted by God himself. A beautifully designed, diverse, delightful garden. There are trees that are pleasing to the eye. We, 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 you know, the seed catalogs and all that are beginning to arrive. And you can spend all your time all summer long making trees pleasing to the eye. But you can't spend all your time with it because you have to have something that's good for, for food. Well, God does that too. Plants good for food. And abundantly watered to keep it green and lush in, in an area that we now know as a fairly arid part of the world. Why? All prepared for man, his image bearer. Sounds too good to be true. Indeed, many people think, yeah, it is too good to be true. This is some kind of mythology. Jim Boyce uh, pointed out in a sermon I read of his, he said, when I look up the word Eden in the thesaurus, I find all kinds of words about mythology. No word that has anything about anything actual real, actually real. Everyone assumes Eden is some mythological thing. But, but, but God won't tolerate that kind of thinking. As if to warn us in advance, he throws in verses 10 to 14. And what do we find in verses 10 to 14? Geographical landmarks. Rivers with names. What things are produced in a given region? Names four rivers. Two of which we still know with the same names. The other two we don't know for sure where they are. Discusses products of the region. Things that the people in Moses' day probably knew about. Eden is a place. A delightful garden made for man as God blessed them with all the bounty of his creation. On in verse 15, when God put man in that garden, he uses an interesting word, rest, rest. We discussed that last week. Same word David used in Psalm 95 when he talks about entering God's rest. God brought man into the garden to enter his rest with. Oh, this is no fairy tale. God blessed man with the bounty of his creation. And it was good. I know we don't live in Eden anymore. We live about as close as you can get. If you've ever been around very much, you know this is pretty close. As best we can know it in this abnormal world we live in. But you know, in our darkest hour, in the midst of our greatest pain, on the worst kind of day, we have multitude of reasons for gratitude. For it's still true that God has lavished the bounty of his creation on us. Well, might God's people sing, for the beauty of the earth, for the glory of the skies, for the love which from our birth over and around us lies, for the beauty of each hour, of each day, and the beauty of each night, for hill and dale and tree and flower, for sun and moon and stars of light, 
for the joy of ear and eye, for the heart, for the heart and mind's delight, for the mystic harmony, linking sense to sound and sight, for each perfect gift of thine to our race so freely given, graces human and divine, flowers of earth and buds of heaven, Lord of all, to thee we raise this, our hymn of grateful praise. We owe God gratitude. He has blessed us beyond measure. Heaped upon us the bounty of his creation. But no matter how much God lavishes his blessing on man, God is still the sovereign one. God alone is the sovereign one. And that brings us to the second thing we need to learn briefly from this passage. That's this. God obligated man to obey his word. God obligated man to obey his word. Oh yes, God blessed man with all the bounty of his creation, but he obligated man to obey him. In our description of the bounty of Eden, we kind of skipped over those two trees in the center of the garden. You see it there in verse 9? In the middle of the garden were the tree of life and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Many have taken these trees to be metaphors for something. Well, maybe they could be, but there's no reason not to take these literally. The fruit on the tree was not named life. The tree didn't grow life. The tree, the tree didn't grow knowledge. That's, that's not what this was about. Life and knowledge were the results of eating from these trees. As Derek Kidner points out, I'll read this slowly, but it's really a good, good quote. This does not make the trees magical, but rather sacramental, in the broad sense of the word. Sacramental, in that they are the physical means of a spiritual transaction. The fruit, not in its own right, but as appointed to function, and carrying a word from God, it confronts man with God's will. God's will, very particular and very explicit, and it gives man a decisive yes or no to say with his whole being. This has nothing to do with the physical benefits of eating this fruit or that fruit it has nothing to do with that it has to do with the fact that God attached his word and that was everything now we have uh, heard about God's word before in Genesis why back in chapter 1 we talked about it at length for well, we read there that God said, let there be light. There was light. And God said, let us create this, and it was so. And God said, and it was so. 
Again and again, I remember one of our main points in one of those uh, weeks was that uh, God created all things by his powerful word. But now that creative word, that word by which God created all the heavens and the earth, that word by which God made man in his own image, that word by which God blessed him so much in all the creation, now that word from God becomes a command. A simple, straightforward command. You see it there in verse 16 and 17? And the Lord God commanded the man. You are free to eat of any tree of the whole garden. Blessing, 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 blessing. But you must not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Obligation. Command. First commandment given in the Bible, not the last one, but this is the first and biggest. Why did God forbid them to eat? Meaningless question. Don't even bother asking why. That was Eve's problem. She began to question whether God's word made sense or not. The simple truth is this. The sovereign creator who had demonstrated his great delight in his creature and had, had, had blessed him with all of the bounty of creation, that same God said, you will not eat. Doesn't matter why. Don't waste our time thinking why. God said. God said. God obligated man to obey his word. Now don't be confused at this point. Sometimes given the current environmental concerns that we have, we might get the idea that it must have been man's failure to tend and care for the garden that caused sin to come in the world. Some overzealous environmentalist Christians might say that kind of thing. That's not true. Not true. Adam is living in perfect harmony with his environment. Never is there a hint that he polluted the earth. Never is there a hint that he failed to care for the creatures. God had given him complete dominion over the whole earth. It was a good thing. There's no indication that he didn't exercise it rightly. Those things never an issue. That's not what this is about. The issue was whether man, functioning so perfectly in a perfect environment, with such blessing and everything going so well and with wonderful prosperity and everything's coming up roses, 
Will that man obey God's word? God obligated Adam. They're in his perfect world. There where such a prohibition probably made no sense to him. God obligated Adam to obey. To obey. Not some word that Adam discovered by looking at the creation. A word that God revealed him. Thou shalt not eat. And it was his failure to do that that has brought all the misery that we know in the earth as we will see as we go on in our study. Why did God reveal this to us? Why did he give this account in the first place? Well, we know that this was all written down in the time of Moses. Jesus says that. Moses gave us this. This was given to the people of Israel who were about to enter the land which God had promised to them. And you see, they needed to hear this. God had already lavished on them unbelievable blessings. He would supernaturally delivered them, a slave people, out of Egypt, the most powerful nation, by rolling back the Red Sea, something that never happened before. And, and allowing them to walk through. He, he gave them, made their bitter water sweet so that they could drink in the desert. He, he rained down manna from heaven every day to feed them. He caused water, refreshing water, to flow out of a rock. Twice even. He provided supernatural guidance, supernatural protection for years for them. Oh, they had known blessing after blessing after blessing after blessing. But they had already demonstrated their ability to bask in God's blessing and at the same time subvert God's word. Though God had spoken clearly on Mount Sinai, it was chiseled in stone Though God had spoken to Moses face to face, they found some rationale to disobey anyway. Some rationale to rebel. Some rationale to grumble. Some rationale to bow down before something else and worship it. They were faithless. In fear, they refused to obey God and enter the land because it didn't make sense to them. It looked scary to them. You see, they were willing to bask in the blessing, but they were slow to acknowledge their obligation to obey God's word. And so, through Moses, God wanted these people to see that at a specific time and place just east of them, in places they probably recognized the names of, God had already faced this issue with Adam, who had been blessed even beyond what they had known. But because Adam, in the midst of that blessing, refused to obey God's simple command, 
he had died. And not only had Adam died, the whole creation had come under God's curse. The whole human race had become sinful. Generations had now perished. The beauty has been marred. The garden was gone. And death had passed upon everyone everywhere. And why? Because Adam had done the very thing they were doing. Ignoring, avoiding, distorting, evading, soft-peddling, manipulating, anything but obeying what God said. Sounds vaguely familiar, doesn't it? Basking in blessing. But when it comes to hard line of will, you do what God said. Well, but, uh, you know, this is a different age, and this is a different time, and it's... It, uh, will you do what God said? But it doesn't make sense to me. Will you do what God said? That was the issue. And if Adam, living in a perfect environment, and Israel, who had known supernatural blessing, couldn't be faithful to obey, what about us? There's no hope, is there? That's just the point, there isn't any. We're prone to do the same thing. We've already done the same thing. I know I have, and I suspect you have. I know you have. Indeed, Adam, by his one act of disobedience, plunged us all into sin. As our representative, he acted for us before we were ever born. So that when we were born, we already have the natural inclination to do just exactly what Adam did. We're already guilty before God, before we even start. There's no possibility we might do better. That's why Yahweh, the Lord God, made a covenant. This covenant that's being unfolded in this book, it's a covenant of grace, not works. It's a covenant of promises of God, not our good intentions. It's a covenant of His mighty saving acts, not our ability to try harder and do better. Jim Boyce reminds us of the familiar truth upon our, which our faith rests that the good news is there was another Adam who came. A second Adam. And there was another garden one day. And there the Lord Jesus, not in the beautiful garden of Eden surrounded by a perfect world, but in the garden of Gethsemane in the midst of of the fallenness and the bitter pain. There the Lord Jesus, not living in bliss as the Lord of the whole creation like Adam was, but living in humility as the Son of Man. There the Lord Jesus faced this issue of obedience. 